then your resting metabolic rate will fall and you will need to consume even less calories to be in energy balance but that will then negatively impact your energy availability so that's why it's important to if you're trying to lose weight make it a limited period of time the triathlon show episode 94 Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I discuss nutrition, it's another solo guide and specifically what we'll cover is the research-based recommendations for your overall nutritional energy intake as well as the intake of fat, protein and carbohydrate for endurance athletes. I'm a bit rushed to get this episode out because we've had a couple of rescheduled interviews. I think I mentioned on last episode that you would hear Veronika Vleck on, on this one, for example. Uh, but that has been rescheduled. It will come out pretty soon. I don't know exactly when. But uh, that was rescheduled and then there was another interview rescheduled as well. So I had to quickly come up with a topic and went through a bunch of old questions that, that I've gotten from listeners like you. And a lot of them revolve around nutrition, it seems. So let's tackle this one bit at a time. And uh, there will be follow-up episodes to this one. But this first one is your mostly about overall day-to-day -day nutrition, energy intake, and the intake of the free macronutrients. Uh, I'm excluding alcohol because, um, yeah, I, I don't want to give you any recommendations or guidelines for that uh, necessarily, or maybe I should at some point. But today we're talking about fat, protein, and carbohydrate. But uh, as you may know, alcohol is actually considered a fourth macronutrient. But first, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. One size fits all doesn't cut it when it comes to hydration. For example, Andy Blow, who is the founder of Precision Hydration, go and check out episode 49 where I interview him. Uh, he's a former elite triathlete and he loses nearly twice as much sodium in his sweat as Johnny, who is the COO of Precision Hydration, who is a double world silver medalist when from his paddling days for Great Britain. So, they need completely different hydration products, which is why Precision Hydration offer various electrolyte strengths in their products to match your results from their free online sweat test that you can take right now on precisionhydration.com. If you end up buying any of their products, use the discount code Show, all one word, for 15% off. This episode is also sponsored by Ventum. You can find them on VentumRacing.com. Check out who their pro athletes are. They include Leander Cave, Cameron Dye, Cody Beals, Meredith Kessler, and a lot of other big household names in the triathlon world. You can check out their wind tunnel reports where they compared Ventum to other triathlon bikes. And guess who's the fastest? And of course, remember that you get 110% of the value of your old bike towards the purchase of a new Ventum bike. Again, that's VentumRacing.com. Alright, so let's get on with the show. First of all, I have based a lot of this discussion, or the primary source of information is a great source, the greatest I could find, and it's the joint position statement by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the Dietitians of Canada, 
and the American College of Sports Medicine that uh, made a position statement called Nutrition and Athletic Performance. So it's a, and it was published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise in 2016. So a very, very credible journal. And uh, there are one author representing each of the three entities, and they include some of the biggest names in the sport. Notably, you may have heard of Louis Burke, who is a fantastic researcher with the AIS, but also in this case representing the American College of Sports Medicine. But uh, she is somebody that I've tried to get a hold of to get on for an interview, but I haven't been successful yet. But who knows, maybe 2018 is the year. Anyway, in addition to these three authors, in addition Louis Burke, uh, Kelly Erdman, and Travis Thomas, they have a long list of reviewers. I think something like four or five reviewers for each of the three entities that are behind this position statement. They have so much credibility that uh, words can't really describe it. Uh, there are experts in the field of not nutrition, but nutrition for endurance sports and athletes in general. So. So that's, I mean, this is this is the best of the best when it comes to, to credibility, really. So again, I'll link to that in the show notes, but the joint position statement, and it's called Nutrition and Athletic Performance. And uh, yeah, so let's start with the first question, really, which is how much should you eat overall, or how much, how big should your energy intake be overall? And the simple answer to this is that unless you want to lose weight, you have to take in as much energy as you expend. So this is called being in energy balance. And the energy balance equation is a pretty simple one. You need to get in as much energy as your total energy expenditure and the total energy expenditure equals your basal metabolic rate, which is what you would burn in terms of energy if you were just laying in bed all day, plus the thermic effect of food, which is the energy that your body uses to process any food that you consume or any anything any nutrition you can consume that can be supplements it doesn't have to be food and plus finally of course the thermic effect of activity so that refers to anything that you do walking training for triathlon maybe some of you may do or any any activity really one thing that's uh, pretty important to note here is that your basal metabolic rate isn't the same as your resting metabolic rate the resting metabolic rate is uh, roughly 10% higher than the basal metabolic rate, but it's uh, if you go to like something like an in-body measurement or something, they usually measure the, the resting metabolic rate just because it's, uh, it's easier to measure than the, than the basal metabolic rate. Essentially, measuring the, the basal metabolic rate would require that you actually sit still or lay down all day long, which isn't really that much fun. But here are some interesting stats and uh, numbers for you. So for sedentary individuals, the resting metabolic rate, which is again 10% higher than the basal metabolic rate, it's usually 60 to 80% of your daily energy expenditure. Not your, but uh, this individual's who does no triathlon training. In elite endurance athletes, on the other hand, they probably do quite a bit more training than most of the listeners do, but still, this gives kind of the range. This, uh, the percentage of the resting metabolic rate in, compared to the entire daily energy expenditure can be between 38 to 47%, so less than, than half of the energy expenditure is uh, the resting metabolic rate. And uh, that's 
for, first of all, they have a much higher resting metabolic rate than than sedentary individuals, and and then of course they burn a lot of energy through training. So for these uh, athletes, the energy expended in physical activity is almost fifty percent of of the daily energy expenditure. Because then the thermic effect of food, which is the third component of the total energy expenditure, it's pretty small in in comparison to the other uh, to to the other components of it. Most age group triathletes naturally fall somewhere between the sedentary individual and the elite athlete, so uh, that would be somewhere between the let's say between seventy and forty percent of total energy expenditure being your resting metabolic rate and for more reading about these basics about energy requirements i recommend that you check out uh, a publication called energy requirements of the athlete assessment and evidence of energy efficiency by manor and colleagues from oregon state university that's uh, kind of the the seminal work on this and um, yeah it's a good good paper if you're interested in that but then a less known concept than than the energy expenditure, which you need to balance with your energy intake if you want to retain your weight and you don't want to lose weight, you don't want to gain weight, is uh, energy availability. It's related, but it's different because it defines the energy intake requirements that you at the minimum need for optimal health and function. So, so it doesn't mean that you're not in energy balance if you if you don't have enough energy availability if you have a very low resting metabolic rate and uh, th- that would c- could mean that even if you eat very little you would be in energy balance you would eat as much as you your energy expenditure is but your energy availability availability would still be too small so it's defined as uh, the the energy your energy intake minus the energy that you expend in exercise divided by your fat-free mass. So, for example, let's say that your energy intake is 2,500 calories and you expend 500 calories in through exercise. You do one training session that's 500 calories. Then that would be that subtracting that would be 2,000 calories. And then you divide that 2,000 calories by your fat-free mass. So let's say that your uh, fat percentage is 10 and your weight is 70 kilograms, then 7 kilograms of uh, of those 70 is fat. And so then you would uh, divide 2,000 calories by 63 kilograms, which is your fat-free mass. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this energy availability has been primarily studied in females uh, because it's First, originally, it came from studying the female athlete triad that I'm sure you've heard of. The triad is uh, disordered eating, menstrual dysfunction, and and uh, poor bone density and or bone health in general. And the female athlete triad is one potential consequence of insufficient energy availability. But uh, in more recent years, the female athlete triad has been extended to the concept that is broader and uh, and includes both male and female, and it's called relative energy deficiency in sport, which is uh, abbreviated red S. So, and that may negatively impact all of those things mentioned for the female athlete triad, but also more generally uh, hormonal, metabolic, hematological growth and development, 
psychological, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, and immunological systems and, and function. And again, it fa- affects both males and females. So, But for example, going back to the energy availability, it has been found, for example, that if you have an energy availability of 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, then your energy balance uh, is uh, sufficient for optimal health and function. On the flip side, a chronic reduction in energy availability, especially if you go below 30 kilocalories or calories, I'll just call it calories, even though it's uh, technically kilocalories. If you go below 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, that uh, has been associated with a variety of dysfunctions that of those dysfunctions that are listed below for the female athlete triad and red S. So, uh, so that's, yeah, you don't want to go below that and try to stay around that 45 that has been shown to be safe i'll actually uh, i have my calculator here so the example i used 2000 uh, divided by 63 let's see what that comes oh that's bad that's uh, only 32 uh, kilocalories per fat-free mass so so yeah uh, let's take another example my energy availability is probably something around i would say 3000 divided by uh, 59 I'm having a guess here no that seems too big anyway that's that's a demo effect for you but but that's first example that I had the 2000 calories in in energy available after subtracting the training uh, expenditure divided by a fat-free mass of 63 kilograms, that was uh, close to 30, which is uh, a chronically low, or chronically, obviously, of course, if it's only, if it happens on an almost daily basis, but but still, it's around that low benchmark that you don't want to be around. So, that uh, ener- energy balance is important, but equally important is energy availability. So, this is super simple to calculate, so I'd really encourage you to calculate, estimate your own energy availability, and also your energy balance, of course, to see where you fall in in that spectrum. And so, one thing to consider is that that if you are chronically trying to cutting yourself uh, from enough uh, caloric intake, then your resting metabolic rate will fall, and you will need to consume even less calories to be in energy balance but that will then negatively impact your energy availability so that's why it's important to if you're trying to lose weight make it a limited period of time and and then go back to to making sure that you have you eat uh, enough making sure that you really eat enough that's that's important that's just as important as not overeating is eating enough if not more Um, so so yeah, that's that's my main point about uh, energy balance and uh, energy availability. Of course, if you want to lose weight, then it's a different story. And I'll come back to that in a follow-up episode on body composition. Then you need a caloric deficit. But as I mentioned, it's uh, recommended that you limit the time during which you try to achieve that body composition. And the caloric deficit per day should be quite limited, so a small caloric deficit, around 200 to 300 calories in a deficit per day would be recommended, but not not more than that. So that's uh, very briefly about if you want to lose weight, but more to come in a follow-up episode on body composition. Let's move on to discuss the macronutrients, carbohydrates, fat, and protein. So, before we get started with uh, 
carbohydrates, which I will talk about first. I want to generally talk about how we use uh, different macronutrients for fueling endurance performance. So in endurance sports, the primary, or in life in general, I should say, the primary sources of fuel for the working muscles are carbohydrates, uh, which comes in the form of glycogen in the muscles and the liver, and also fat, uh, which uh, in, uh, many, in different forms in different places in the body. I haven't listed them out here, and I don't want to say anything incorrect, so I'll just say uh, carbohydrates and fat. So carbs can be oxidized, which uh, is a more technical term or more correct and fancier term for burned as fuel uh, aerobically. Uh, and it can also be oxidized anaerobically, which is what happens. Uh, it happens every time you do endurance activities, but it happens more at higher intensities, which you, I'm sure, intuitively know. So for further listening about aerobic processes versus anaerobic processes, I recommend going and listening to episode 71 of this podcast, which is on the aerobic and anaerobic thresholds and the different energy systems that... Uh, that causes us to have these thresholds. And, but fat we burn as, uh, as fuel uh, only aerobically, not anaerobically. So, so that's only, you always have aerobic and anaerobic processes again, but uh, fat is uh, the component that is only oxidized, that is related to, to the lower, uh, lower intensity zones, if that makes sense. But again, I want to reiterate that there's no such thing as only doing aerobic work or only doing anaerobic work it's always a mixture but then the proportion or contribution of the different energy systems is different it's uh, more anaerobic when you your intensity is higher and more aerobic and when your intensity is much lower so uh, there's one really good, uh, a couple of sentences actually that I want to quote directly from the position statement uh, about these energy systems and the utilization of different fuel sources. And that is, an athlete's skeletal muscle has a remarkable plasticity to respond quickly to mechanical loading and nutrient availability, resulting in condition-specific metabolic and functional adaptations. These adaptations influence performance nutrition recommendation, recommendations with the overarching goals that energy systems should be trained to provide the most economical support for the fuel demands of an event, while other strategies should achieve appropriate substrate availability during the event itself. So the key points here are that we need to train our energy systems uh, and that should, they should be trained in accordance with our goal events so that we get the most economical support possible for them. And we also need to make sure that we, that we have enough energy substrate availability, that is fat and carbohydrates. And since fat is abundant in the body, it's uh, mostly carbohydrate that we need to make sure that we have, have available to us during events because that is uh, the, where the stores of carbs in the body are limited. And if we're doing any longer endurance event, we will run out unless we supplement with carbs. So let me be even more specific on this point by, uh, I guess, asking the question, should we rely on carbs or fat for fueling endurance sports? And it's not either or, it's both. And uh, we, we shouldn't uh, train to be a, an excellent carb burner or an excellent fat burner we should be trained to be excellent at burning or oxidizing carbs and fat 
and you can do that. It's it's not uh, they're not exclusive. At any given time in an endurance event, you are using both carbs and fat for fuel. And as I said, the ratio of fats to carbs that you use depends on the intensity, as well as some other factors, of course, your training, etc., uh, and your nutrition nutrient availability. Uh, but uh, basically, the higher the intensity, the higher the ratio of carbs compared to fat, and uh, vice versa. But one important point that uh, a lot of times is misunderstood is that there are no other energy substrates than carbohydrates that can be used to provide energy anaerobically and we will in almost any endurance event come up against the point when we need to use quite a substantial amount of of energy anaerobically as i said we always have anaerobic processes but especially when we get close to or when we get to the anaerobic threshold by definition so as I talked about in episode 71, once you get to that anaerobic threshold, th- there you have a certain ratio of carbs to fat uh, oxidized for energy. And any increase in intensity beyond that anaerobic threshold, everything, every single piece of energy that your body requires to go that small bit even harder than you're currently going, is going to be fueled anaerobically. Your aerobic system is maxed out, it can't provide any more energy, and that means that fat is out of the questions, you will be relying on carbs. And uh, and, and this is important because even in a flat Ironman where you think that you're going at, uh, at a steady slower pace than, than your anaerobic threshold, uh, you will have spikes in intensity, and over the course of a 8 to 17 hour event depending on how fast you go uh, that will add up and and you will unless you are efficient at burning carbs you will definitely not be as efficient as you should be and perform as well as you should be unless you are good at both burning carbs and have carbs available to you as well as burning fat of course to have uh, to to not run the risk of running out of carbs so because that's the advantage of fat Fat stores are abundant in the body. You can fuel events lasting even days on fats for, for most people. And uh, whereas carbs, or even if you're very lean, whereas carb stores are very limited to roughly 2,000 calories as um, just a rough estimate. So for long events especially, it's uh, you need to use fat for fuel to not burn through those carb stores as quickly as you would if you couldn't use fat. But also you need to you need to fuel with carbs to make sure that you don't run out of those carbs. Because if you run really low, your glycogen stores run really low, you will bonk. And uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's not a fun experience. Plus, now in addition to that, even if you don't deplete the stores completely, you can never deplete them completely. But even getting them to run low-ish leads to increased fatigue reduced performance and impaired skill and concentration as well as incre- increased perception of effort so so you need to even even if you are planning to go pretty slow you want to make sure that your carb stores are not even anywhere near running out really so that means really fueling in your events i hope this makes sense so far so that was before i started uh, rambling i guess uh, i said that the advantage of fat is that fat stores are abundant and now on to the advantage of carbs in addition to that they can provide energy anaerobically of course which i already talked about they provide energy more efficiently than fat actually and and that's a super common misconception that 
people say that uh, fat is more efficient than carbs and and that's uh, completely backwards uh, for any given amount of oxygen that you use to to produce energy aerobically whether it's carbs or fat or in real life a mixture of both the yield of energy that can be used by the muscles because the muscles they use energy in the form of atp so your oxygen uh, uses either carbs or fat and creates atp generates atp using them so so that's kind of uh, very simplistically how it works and you get quite a bit more atp when let's say you you take up and your muscles take up one liter of oxygen then you get quite a bit more atp if it's oxidizing carbs compared to if it's oxidizing fat and the difference is uh, is 10 percent roughly so Per liter of oxygen, you get 5.10 calories if you oxidize carbs. But if you oxidize fats, you get 4.6 calories. So yeah, 4.6 versus 5.10. I calculated that earlier and that's uh, roughly 10 or 11, I think, percent difference. So actually you are using... And, and that means, again, because you are limited in the amount of oxygen you can, you can take up. So let's say you are approaching that threshold and you can no longer your muscles can no longer take up any more oxygen than what you're currently delivering if you're using all that oxygen to burn carbs again this is not going to happen in real life because you burn both carbs and fat but if you burn only fat then you get 10 percent less atp than if you burn only carbs so this means essentially that that the more carbs you you burn the more ATP you get and uh, that fuel your muscles and the more power output you can provide because your, your muscles can produce more energy that uh, that goes into propelling you forwards, whether it's swimming, biking and running. But again, the caveat to this is that you don't want to run out of your carb stores. So uh, this means that you want to also be able to efficiently burn, burn fat, u- utilize fat and to provide additional additional carb sources to the body while you're performing but uh, but this biochemi- biochemistry of this it's uh, you can't train this it's always for one liter of oxygen it's always 5.10 calories of uh, uh, of atp that you get from carbs versus 4.6 of calories of atp per liter of oxygen when you burn fat and and this is not trainable it's a biochemistry equation so taken together, this leads to, to what, what I said about you need to have both. You need to be excellent at oxidizing both carbs and fat. And your both your nutrition and your training should uh, take that into, into account. So I just want to give you one example study that illustrates the point above very well. Uh, because... Because I see it so often that it's misquoted that people think that that you're that it's more efficient to burn fat than carbs when they're actually talking about that you have more fat available and therefore if you're going to go for a long long time and you're not going to fuel yeah then it's going to be more efficient because you're going to bonk otherwise but it's not more efficient in propelling you forwards and creating uh, creating performance so this study that uh, that is a fairly recent one it's from 2014 and published in the international journal of sports medicine is called improved growth efficiency during long duration submaximal cycling following a short-term high carbohydrate diet and growth efficiency here refers to the fact that if your body is uh, producing uh, 100 calories of energy 
then usually an estimate is that 20 of those calories actually go to uh, producing producing performance. So for example, pedaling power, if you're using a bike power meter, uh, if, if, you, if you're pedaling at 250 watts, then 750 watts is, also, is at the same time created but goes to all sorts of different processes in the body. So, so your gross efficiency is only 20%. But, but there are slight variations in this. And this study examined this in 15 trained male cyclists that did three times two-hour tests at sub-maximal exercise intensity. It was 60% of uh, maximal minute power. And they used a crossover design. So uh, participant consumed an equal amount of energy, 4,000 kilocalories per day, in the three days preceding each test. And uh, this uh, diet was... Uh, in turn, so all athletes tried all different options. So, so it was either a high-carbohydrate diet with 70% carbs and 20% fat, or it was a low-carbohydrate diet with 70% fat and 20% carbs, or it was a moderate-carbohydrate diet with 45% carbs, 45% fat, and the rest would be protein, of course. And they measured gross efficiency. Uh, it can be measured in a lab, and blood lactate and uh, heart rate as well, uh, on regular intervals during during those two-hour sub-maximal tests. And they showed that the gross efficiency was significantly greater uh, following the high-carbohydrate diet compared to the moderate or low-carbohydrate diets. And the difference was the gross efficiency was on the high-carbohydrate diet, it was 20.4%, and otherwise it was 19.6%. So the difference there was 0.8 percentage units, but when you actually cal- calculate what the difference is in percentage, it's a 4% improvement in efficiency on the high-carbohydrate diet. So, and, and this is... This is performance efficiency. So this is not biochemistry efficiency. So so that's uh, it's it's pretty cool in my opinion. Uh, I I think it's a really cool study, uh, and also the heart rate responses was uh, were significantly lower in the high carbohydrate conditions compared to the low carbohydrate condition, but uh, diet had no effect on the blood glucose or the lactate levels. So so that's an example, and uh, I think that's enough about uh, the. The general aspects of energy utilization. Let's start talking a little bit about carbs. So first, before starting this section on carbs, if you want to read more about this, and now I'm talking not blog posts, but actually research publications, there's a great article by Louis Burke as the main author, and as I mentioned before, one of the most respected uh, nutrition researchers in the world with the Australian Institute of Sport. And Asker uh, Jokendrup, I don't know how exactly to pronounce that, but I mean, he's the godfather, <laughs> not, not the godfather, but, but he's... Uh, currently probably one of the top three researchers on nutrition in the world like yeah everybody knows him and um so um i've lost my friend here yeah they they were involved in or louis burke was the main author and asker jokendrap was a co-author in this study or the research review called carbohydrates for training and competition which summarizes everything you need to know about carbs if you want to read that from a credible source so i'll link to that as well now on to the joint position statement. Uh, I'll talk first about how much carbs you should consume per day in your day-to-day nutrition, uh, depending on how much exercise you do. So let's say you do light exercise, and that is uh, low-intensity skill-based activity, so not le- really relevant for anybody who does triathlon. 
that then the recommended carb intake per day is three to five grams per kilogram body weight but moderate which uh, i think is uh, probably almost the majority of the listeners but quite a few of you may be in the high bucket as well uh, so moderate exercise which is defined as roughly one hour per day of endurance exercise then you should fall in the bucket of consuming five to seven grams of carbs per kilogram body weight. So as an example, let's say you're a female, you weigh 50 kilograms and you want to consume that five grams per kilogram, which is in the low end of that range, that would be 250 grams of carbs. That would mean a thousand calories per day coming from carbs. Uh, I'll uh, talk a little bit more about that because I think that some of you may have raised some eyebrows uh, but I'll talk about that after going through the high and very high buckets so if you do a high amount of exercise which is um, actually I misspoke the definition of uh, of the former the moderate bucket that that is defined as moderate exercise routine for example roughly one hour per day but the high is then defined as endurance training, for example, one to three hours per day, including moderate and high intensity exercise. And that, that range is six to 10 grams per kilogram body weight. And finally, the very high, this is, I don't think any listener really is, uh, except for the pros that may be listening to this, if there are any, uh, would be in this bucket. That is, uh, for example, four to five hours per day, including moderate and high intensity exercise. That would be eight to 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. But most likely you would be in the moderate, which is five to seven grams per kilogram or six to 10 grams per kilogram body weight buckets. And yeah, what I said about some of you may be raising eyebrows hearing that if you're a 50 kilogram female, you will st still need to, and you train a moderate amount, you still need to consume a thousand, what was it? A thousand one hundred uh, grams of ki uh, kilocalories of carbs? No, a thousand on, on, the, on the nose. Yeah, so did, that may sound like a lot, especially with uh, the way that uh, media these days portray carbs and and this is something this is a pet peeve of mine because carbs does not equal grains uh, there's there are tons of ways to get a thousand calories of carbs really easily and really healthily uh, fruits and vegetables should be the mainstay of most people's uh, diets obviously i should have caveated this episode from the front by saying that nutrition is very individual and uh, Generic advice is uh, fine for the majority of athletes and you should use that as uh, a starting point perhaps, but at the end of the day it is very individual and there will be exceptions, of course, uh, like with training, but, but, but the point here being that uh, from fruits and, uh, and vegetables and very healthy fiber-rich carbs like uh, legumes and uh, beans and, and even a lot of different sources of carbs, uh, nuts contain some carbs. There, there are so many healthy sources of carbs that it's super easy to get to that amount, really. And uh, the other thing I should say is that to consume some carbs that are in these in this today's media climate considered unhealthy grains, it's not unhealthy when you have the right nutrition timing, which we'll come on to also in a follow-up episode. Uh, so, for example, consumed after a long or hard workout, uh, a bowl of pasta is a perfect recovery meal. Pasta bolognese would be, like, perfect. I would love it. So, that's not to say that it's wrong to have, like, um, a bean stew or something after exercise. We'll come on to that. There's actually research that says that the 
type of carbs isn't necessarily you don't need to focus on on high gi carbs after exercise now i'm really getting off on a sidetrack here but i want to just show you that we are talking about an a big amount of carbs for endurance athletes that's recommended but it's also recommended although it's uh, not necessarily the point that this position statement focuses on but it should be unprocessed healthy carbs that should be the majority but then of course sports nutrition products come into play during exercise and after exercise there are also these caveats that uh, it doesn't really matter much what kind of carbs you don't need to focus on having the most healthy diet at that point Anyway, I hope that makes sense, uh, that, uh, that little uh, sidetrack, but I think it's important to make a difference between carbs and grains, and, uh, and there are also differences between grains and grains, like uh, whole wheat versus, uh, versus the white kind of bread and pasta and, and etc. One more topic I want to cover related to carbs is low, training low, so training on a low availability of carbohydrates. That has been coming to the forefront in recent years as a potential way to uh, a tool in the nutrition toolbox to potentially benefit endurance performance and the reasoning behind so so what this means is uh, for example you wake up you don't have any breakfast or at least not any carbs and you go out and do a run or any workout so so you, you have limited availability since your glycogen stores are a bit low after the night and uh, yeah and, and that will potentially allow you to get some metabolic adaptations, which will benefit performance. Uh, the reasoning behind this, if we get a bit more technical, is increased maximal mitochondrial enzyme activities and uh, mitochondrial content. And also, of course, which is probably the most talked about point, increased rates of fat oxidation. If you have lower carb availability, then your fat oxidation rate may increase. So actually what this nutrition or the position statement uh, has found is that uh, from uh, reviewing the research is that training low is more effective not when doing it as just pure fasted training, waking up and going out training on an empty stomach, but actually when you have intentionally depleted your glycogen stores from a previous session. So, so that means you do a workout in the morning, for example, a pretty a workout that is either long enough or hard enough that it will uh, deplete your glycogen stores, and then you you should you shouldn't fast after that. But you should probably, if you want to get these adaptations, you shouldn't have any high carbohydrate content recovery nutrition. You you should focus more on on proteins and fat in between that workout and the next workout, because the next workout is the one that truly will cause those adaptations because you have depleted your glycogen stores in that first session and now you're starting the next one without having refueled and so you yeah you're in a state of low glycogen stores and this has been shown to compare to just training fasted this is more effective in causing those adaptations that we we want uh, with this training low concept so that's that's very interesting that's something that i didn't know and uh, the mechanisms and the theory behind these metabolic advantages and they are very sound uh, but at this point there's actually not a lot of 
evidence about the performance outcomes. Uh, much more research is needed, uh, but uh, in the research review, fueling strategies to optimize performance, training high or training low, which is uh, another uh, review by Louise Burke. She concludes that despite increasing the muscle adaptive response and reducing the reliance on carbohydrate utilization during exercise, there is not yet clear evidence that these strategies enhance exercise performance. So, so yeah, you get the metabolic adaptations, but we don't know if that translates to faster times. Uh, there is another nice publication that I'll link to by another very famous uh, nutrition researcher, Trent Stellingworth. I highly recommend following him, him on Twitter. He's one of my favorite uh, Twitter people to follow. Uh, that publication is called Contemporary Nutrition Approaches, Approaches to Optimize Elite Marathon Performance. This discusses this topic to some extent, and... Uh, it comes to the same conclusion when he reviews some of the exercise. He doesn't do as much of a deep dive as Louis Burke does, but he also includes some anecdotal evidence, for example, of the East African uh, marathon runners, uh, that is pretty interesting to read and gives, uh, gives an additional perspective that is not different, but is complementary. So uh, my personal guess, this is just personal, as I said, the research doesn't show any performance benefits yet, but I think that uh, within a few years we will soon see some research showing such performance benefits from strategic implementation of training low strategies uh, and that that are used in an appropriate dosage so don't do this every day as part of a smart and periodized strategy just like a training plan should be smart and periodized and take the long-term goals into account that's my guess that's not based on research so don't take my word for it but but yeah that, that's just what I would, if I would create my nutrition strategy, I would probably include some training low uh, training in in that. I haven't honestly had the time to think about my nutrition strategy to that extent. <laughs> so that's that's my excuse for not having a more particular approach, I should say, about it. All right, so here's actually a change of plans on the fly because I see that I've been talking for a long time and uh, I have a coaching call starting pretty soon and I need to prepare for that and then have the coaching call. And also it should be a human right to not have to hear just my voice for more than, let's say, 45 minutes or so. I think that's appropriate. Uh, everything in moderation, as they say. So let's split this episode into two parts. And the next part will have this same kind of information about protein and fat. And uh, yeah, that, that should be roughly it. And, and a specific example about the uh, macronutrient ratios of an endurance athlete. So And maybe some other things related to, to these topics. But that will be in next episode. And that also saves me from having to spend too many hours doing the show notes if i do a, an hour and a half long podcast then making the show notes would take me forever so i don't want to do that uh, i want to start to end this episode here and i hope that you've enjoyed this and tune in on thursday or monday whenever the next episode comes out to to check out the next part on carbohydrates and fat uh, thank you to everybody who's taking the That's Triathlon Show 2018 survey. I really, really appreciate it to you guys. It means so much to me and it really helps me uh, with developing the show and continuing to hopefully improve it. And it's still up for anybody who wants to take it. It's on 
scientifictriathlon.com forward slash survey and that's where you can it's a very quick survey and you can answer what type of content you want to here on that triathlon show and some other questions that you can answer if you want. So it really helps a lot if you do. And uh, in addition to the next part of this episode, I'll also have episodes, nutrition episodes like this based on on the research review and the, the especially the position statement uh, as uh, in the background about body composition and nutrition before, during and after workouts. Expect them in the coming weeks or coming month or couple of months at latest so there will be that and there will be a lot of interviews as well you can find the show notes for this episode as usual on that show.com make sure to comment i've been getting some comments now which is uh, very good i as i've asked for them and they've been dropping in slowly but steadily so that's great brilliant thank you guys and uh, i really want to make the the comments on the show notes pages the the place where we can continue the discussion on any episode so if you have any comments or questions about this episode post them in the comments on uh, the show notes page again that's that triathlonshow.com and just click through to this episode thank you again to ventum for supporting that triathlon show check them out on ventumracing.com and remember that you get 110 percent of the value of your old bike towards the purchase of a new ventum bike we're well into January now, and if you don't yet have your tri-bike sorted for the racing season, it's about time to get serious about getting one, so you have plenty of time to train on it and adapt to it. Thank you also to Precision Hydration. Take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to make sure that you get your sodium needs met in training and racing. You get your personalized hydration strategy for free and use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, for 15% off their electrolyte products. And thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.